All right. So first one of these in about a week. Uh, apologies for any uh, sound quality issues. I could not find the, uh, the little connector uh, to um, to hook up uh, the nice headphones to uh, with the mic on it uh, to uh, to my iPhone. I'm going to try to do another one of these tomorrow, and if I do, I will with any luck. Uh, I will have found that then. So I'm just going to have to be talking into uh, the phone uh, in the old-fashioned way, and I will periodically check to see if I uh, see if I see any calls. Uh, also, I know that I often say this, and it turns out not to be true because I get wrapped up in the conversation, and uh, we end up going for an hour or more. But this time, I really am going to hold it bound to half an hour because I have movie tickets. Uh, need to uh, go uh, meet up a friend to uh, to go see uh, go to the theater um, in um, you know at that time. So I uh, really do have to wrap this up by about eight. So I want to get right into it. I want to talk a little bit about the article that I wrote uh, for Sublation, uh, and then I will. Um, and and then I will you know take any calls if if we have any. Uh, I know it's a short episode, so we might not. Uh, and then yeah, then I'll knock off by about eight. So for people who aren't familiar with Sublation Magazine, this is uh, part of Sublation Media, which is what my uh, friend Doug Lane started after the end of his tenure as the editor at Zero Books. Uh, so it is a, a publishing house as well as um, as well as a magazine. They are coming out with their first book later this month. There's going to be a launch party in um, New York, um, in Brooklyn, on the 26th. So I'm going to be at that. I'm going to be speaking at a panel. Um, that's going to be Norman Finkelstein's book. So, um, so yeah, people should come check that out. Um, while I'm at it with stuff like that, the day before on the 25th, I'm going to be doing a debate about media manipulation with basically, uh, you know, a couple of right wingers, uh, somebody who's kind of a right winger and possibly another, another guest with good politics. Uh, I don't want to jump the gun on that. We're going to have to see if, if they, um, if they actually do it, but uh, so yeah, that's the day before the zero books. Uh, wow, zero books. The sublation uh, launch of, uh, of uh, Norman Finkelstein's new book on the twenty sixth. On the twenty fifth, I'm going to be doing this event at Beacon Theater. It's part of the Minds Festival of Ideas. So earlier in the program, uh, Cornell West is going to be talking to um, was it Colin Hughes and Margaret Kimberly. Um, and then there's another panel, which is very, very right-winger heavy, uh, but also has Destiny in it. And then uh, there's this panel, which, again, like I said, a couple right-wingers, somebody who's kind of a right-winger now, me, and then possibly, you know, mystery guest TBA I'm excited about. If they agree to do it, we'll also make it feel a little bit more politically balanced, but uh, we will see. So people who are currently doing it are me, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, uh, and uh, Tim Poole and James O'Keefe. So it's an interesting lineup. Should be an interesting event. Come check that out. Again, Beacon Theater on the 25th. And while I'm at it with all this stuff on the 17th, so a week from today, I'm going to be in Baltimore uh, doing an event at Red Emma's, uh, which is a worker-owned bookstore and coffee house in Baltimore. 
I'm going to be doing an event for my Hitchens book. I'm going to be doing a reading and signing and Q and a, um, so, um, so yeah, people should, uh, people should come check that out. If you're in the Baltimore, uh, you know, area, um, it, uh, that should be a lot of fun. Okay. So speaking of Hitchens, this is the article that I wrote for, uh, first ablation magazine. Uh, so it's called, uh, Ukraine and the specter of Christopher Hitchens, uh, when I was pitching it uh, to uh, Gene Bajalon, who's an editor there, uh, I was, you know, like I think the title I pitched it with was a disturbing echo of late Hitchens, um, you know, progressives in the Ukraine. And the idea is roughly this, that, you know, as it happens, so I wrote this book about Christopher Hitchens that came out at the uh, very end of last year. Uh, end of December, beginning of January, right? Like, so a couple weeks after the 10-year anniversary of Hitchens' death, which, of course, is the reason for that timing. And so I'd spent a lot of time, you know, leading up to it, writing about, thinking about, reading about uh, Christopher Hitchens, because uh, he's a figure that, um, you know, he's a figure who I always found fascinating, and I was always you know, super ambivalent about it. I just finished recording something for Derek Varn's thing, Varn vlog, where we talk about this. And, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, he's a writer and debater who I always found very compelling. And, you know, and I, I liked a lot of what he had to say, but obviously I absolutely loathed, uh, viscerally loathed his late in life foreign policy positions. And I, you know, he did tend to try to emphasize the points of continuity uh, between what he thought earlier in his life as a leftist and what he thought later in his life as essentially a liberal interventionist and supporter of Bush's wars. Uh, but I saw a big departure there. Um, and even though I didn't buy the sort of explanations that I would often get from other lefties uh, that were kind of out there that like, oh, he was just a sellout or I don't know, somehow he just drank too much and that made him pro-imperialist, you know, which is not a risk of uh, of alcohol. Uh, that that I've ever seen on a warning label, uh, or um, or maybe this has something to do with some sort of you know trot to neocon pipeline. You'll hear people talk that way sometimes, especially the Stalinists talk that way. Frankly, right? You know that they think, oh, if you're the wrong kind of communist, there's a pipeline from that to being a neocon, which I never really bought because um, you know the vast majority of people who start out as Trotskyists never become neocons, uh, and probably most neocons, you know, certainly on a rank and file level, were never trots. And, you know, the vast majority of ex-Trotskists who lose their radicalism, like the vast majority of ex-Stalinists and the vast majority of ex-anarchists and the vast majority of ex-every kind of radical who lose their radicalism, uh, just become, you know, regular liberals. So uh, none of those explanations really worked for me. And, you know, I also didn't think that... Um, Hitchens became, you know, to the extent that you could call his position late in life a neocon, I think it'd be more precisely accurate to say that he agreed with the neocons about the wars in the Middle East, although he continued to disagree with them about a lot of other things. Um, you know, he was, uh, he was actually surprisingly good on Palestine, even to the end. Uh, he was anti-torture, at least, you know, later on after he let himself be waterboarded for, you know, for a Vanity Fair and concluded that it was, in fact, torture. Uh, he was always against mass surveillance uh, and was, in fact, a party to like a mass, uh, uh, what do you call that? Like a, 
mass civil action, uh, you know, to uh, to stop uh, warrantless mass surveillance. Uh, so he did disagree with the neocons on a lot of things, in particular Palestine. That's like right at the core of, of their interests. But uh, you know, he he was in certain respects a neocon. He certainly converged with them on the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And you know, I think that you know how to explain this is something that I really want to explore in the book. Um, you know, I, I like a lot of people seem to sort of have an impression and I can understand where you get this impression. If you're just kind of following the Hitchens greatest hits, uh, that, um, well, he was just a little too into atheism and that made him hate Muslims. And that's why he supported these wars. But that doesn't really work with the timeline because um, the 90s were kind of a transitional period in his where he was still very hostile overall to American imperialism, but he was starting to make exceptions to it. And like the first big exception uh, was about Bosnia, which is a war where the United States was not bombing Muslims. It was intervening on behalf of Bosnia Muslims against Serbian Christians. Um, so I don't think that's it. Uh, so... Okay, so all of this has been a lot about the Hitchens book, and you know, I'm sure some people listening to this now have heard me talk plenty about the Hitchens book, so I don't want to bore you too much with that, you know. But I do want to talk about this article I wrote for Simulation, because where that came from is okay, so I've been I've written this book about Hitchens. I've been spending all this time thinking about Hitchens's political trajectory and how it was that he'd ended up in what I see as catastrophically misguided uh, foreign policy positions in the last decade of his life, especially. Um, and um, especially if you assume, as I do, that, you know, I mean, he was well-intentioned, right? That, um, you know, it wasn't that he just hated Muslims so much. It wasn't that, you know, he was a sellout, that he was making an honest effort, albeit a catastrophically misguided effort, but an honest effort, to apply his values to a messy world. Um, because, you know, even though he'd largely given up on socialism at that point, um, you know, he had, he at least hoped for democratic revolution to be spread to Middle East, the Middle East, uh, which, you know, up till this point in the chain of reasoning, I can uh, sympathize. Uh, but then he, you know, he thought the United States military, you know, could, could be a vehicle of that, which is where I get off board. But, you know, Honest opposition to dictatorship and, and you know and you know theocracy in the case of the Taliban and you know just just brutal authoritarianism in the case of Saddam Hussein's Iraq and understanding that these were awful bad right wing reactionary governments like this is you know this is all part of the mix and the reason I'm doing this extended riff on Hitchens before I really get to the article is that where the article comes from is having been immersed in Hitchin stuff, it's been really disconcerting to me in the last few months to see how um, a lot of progressives, a lot of people who I would see as, you know, solidly left liberal in a pro-Bernie sort of way, you know, as at least soft political allies, have been sounding a hell of a lot like Christopher Hitchens since Russia invaded Ukraine. What do I mean by that? Well, let me give you a few examples. Um, I, you know, one that, uh, that comes, you know, immediately to mind from the conversation that I just had with Varn is uh, the conflation of claims about causation with justification. In other words, that 
just as in the post 9-11 era, um, people who were, um, you know, who would point out all the ways in which American foreign policy uh, was relevant to explaining why the 9-11 attacks had happened in the first place, who thought that maybe Al-Qaeda, which is a hideously, you know, right-wing reactionary organization, if ever there was one, I mean, genuinely fascist, but, you know, nevertheless, that it did have some, um, you know, maybe fascist is imprecise, but, you know, hideously, violently, brutally, um, far, far, far right-wing, right, you know, medieval, uh, that uh, this is, you know, nevertheless, despite being bad people, right, that they did have some motivations that were a little bit more mundane and explicable than just hating our freedom, which was the only acceptable explanation in the Bush era for why Al-Qaeda did what it did, that if you acknowledged this point, right, you were accused of uh, sympathy with Al-Qaeda. You said, oh, you know, nobody was louder about this than uh you know, the late Hitchens, you know, who call people objectively, you know, you know, pro Saddam, right, you know, for uh, for opposing the invasion of Iraq. Um, and the sort of absurdity of that, of saying, look, you can make a causal claim about the ways in which U.S. foreign policy made stuff like the 9-11 attacks more likely to happen without justifying massacring random office workers in the middle of New York. Um that that distinction was lost in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, I see something very similar in a lot of commentary, a lot of discourse, even a lot of progressive discourse about the war in Ukraine. That, um, well, if you think that uh, any American foreign policy decisions, you know, the, uh, you know, like uh, keeping the door open to Ukrainian membership in NATO and, after accepting, you know, several, you know, like in uh, the late 2000s, uh, other Russian neighbors into uh, into NATO, uh, aggressively supporting um, the uh, the you know the pro-Western, anti-Russian, you know, faction uh, in you know the Maidan you know, revolution or whatever you want to call that, and in the you know subsequent civil war, that you know uh, the the unwillingness of the Biden administration to put issues like NATO expansion on the table and like actually sit down for direct talks uh, with the Russians that, you know, you think that these were, you know, that, that these things help causally explain how things got to this level of tension, right? That, you know, I mean, it's, it's an insane escalation on Putin's part. They actually invaded the whole country and, you know, tried to take Kiev, uh, you know, really made an attempt to invade the whole country, uh, even if the, the current war goals are now scaled back from that. Um, but if you think, look, you know, there are things about American foreign policy that help explain how it is that things got to this point, right, that they escalated to this this stage in the first place, uh, you're accused of being pro-Putin. And you're being accused, frankly, of being pro-Putin by people who should know better, you know, people who I usually like. Uh, you know, that, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders foreign policy advisor, Matt Dust, said a tweet where he, he you know, he said people who, who say they want a negotiated settlement um, and that there's some negotiated settlement that Biden could push for that would help end the war uh, want Ukraine to surrender. Um, you know, the I quote, I mean, these guys are actually friends of mine, you know, uh, but I quote the, you know, the Know Your Enemy podcast. And I'm also a patron. I like the podcast a lot. 
uh, where they were talking about a statement called, you know, was it Back from the Abyss or something like that? It was like an open letter that was published in Compact, which is a right-wing magazine I've been incredibly critical of. You could read my article about it in uh, Jacobin from when it was first announced. Uh, but this, this statement, you know, which was, yeah, mostly signed by right-wingers, but also by several very left-wing people uh, like, you know, Sam Moyne, um, who's actually been a, a guest on uh, I Know Your Enemy before, um, that they, and, um, you know, and I, I know I caught, you know, several other examples of left-wing names on there, that was basically a, a plea for de-escalation and negotiation in Ukraine, you know, saying let's stop this sort of mad rush towards what could very easily become World War Three. Uh, and they, they said, uh, oh, these, these guys, you know, they're just, they're just making up some sort of rush towards escalation. Um, because after all, look, Biden's not doing the no fly zone. Biden's not sending troops. So what is there, you know, what is there to be concerned about? Right. So, uh, therefore this, this alleged concern about a march towards war about, you know, greater, greater escalation of direct American involvement, this must just be a smokescreen because they really want Putin to win. Now, to be fair to the Know Your Enemy guys, a lot of the escalation that's happened was after this episode that I was quoting, you know, in the uh, in the article. Uh, but there has been a lot, right? I mean, in a lot of ways, uh, U.S.-Russian tensions today are actually worse than they were in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, you know, even in 1962, the CIA wasn't assassinating Russian generals and bragging about it to the New York Times. Uh, you know, was it helping, you know, some other enemy sink Russian ships and bragging about it to the New York Times? You know, both, of, you know, which, again, you can still find those. Um, there have been very weak and unconvincing dials, but I mean, those are still up in the New York Times. You know, American, you know, intelligence sources say, you know, they, they helped assassinate Russian generals, helped sink, you know, Russian ship. Uh, this, uh, you know, it, it, it has been this increasingly more direct level of American involvement in what even many American, you know, like, um, you know, there was a member of the House Armed Services Committee uh, who called it uh, a proxy war with Russia. You know, he said, you know, somewhat by proxy. Um, you know, Anthony Blinken, the uh, Secretary of Defense, said uh, that the the goal uh, was, you know, and, you know, the um, House Armed Services guy said uh, that it was uh, it was a war not just to help Ukrainians, but again, you know, but against Russia somewhat through a proxy. That was his phrase, right? Which again, very much fits with all this stuff, you know, U.S. intelligence, you know, uh, assassinating Russian generals, sinking Russian ships. Uh, the, um, you know, it has, um, you know, there's, uh, yeah, the the Secretary of Defense said that uh, the goal of the war, uh, you know, the goal of you know American, you know, American involvement in the war, uh, was not just to force Russia to withdraw from Ukraine. Uh, but to weaken Russia's capacity, you know, to weaken Russia to the point where it no longer had the capacity to do things like this, which taken literally is a call to turn one of the world's major nuclear powers into a failed state. Uh, so all of this stuff disturbs the hell out of me, and it also disturbs the hell out of me without denying that there is a faction of marginal, unpleasant weirdos within the Western left that's genuinely pro-Putin. 
right? On the Give Them an Argument YouTube channel, we uh, we watched a debate uh, between Destiny and Dylan Burns on one side and uh, Infrared, Haas, that guy, and Jackson Hinkle on the other, where, it, you know, Haas and Hinkle were taking an explicitly pro-Putin position, which is insanely stupid. Uh, but putting aside a few extremely marginal weirdos, right? Almost nobody, you know, on the anti-war left in the uh, in the United States, who who's disturbed by the escalation of American involvement in the war, make you know becoming ever more and more direct, uh, who um, you know is disturbed by the very real possibility of World War Three, who wants de-escalation and you know and negotiation like direct negotiations with Americans, you know, with Biden ideally. Uh, literally at the table, that the vast majority of people who say things like that have no sympathy whatsoever for uh, for for Vladimir Putin's right wing reactionary government, uh, or for the absolutely horrifying and unjustified invasion of Ukraine. Um, you know the things that I know. Look, the things I think you know about Ukraine are the same things I thought about Iraq, right? Uh, that uh, the the war was totally unjustified, um, and uh, but also if Russia or China had um, had started to become more and more directly involved, you know, I don't know, on the side of Saddam or insurgents in Iraq, uh, with a danger of escalation towards World War Three, I would have been very disturbed by that. I would have been against that too. I would have wanted negotiations. Um, so, I, I think that. Yeah, I, I, I'm just um, extremely disturbed by the slide towards Hitchensism, and this is where I think all the stuff at the beginning about why I think Hitchens was taking these positions becomes extremely relevant, because it's not that he was just a bad guy, right? It's not that he, you know, just took the money or, you know, the somehow all the whiskey made him do it or something like that, right? I don't think any of those things are true. I think that it was a... Um, you know, cold, you know, post Cold War disorientation, right? Seeing a very different world, not being sure what to do, seeing the United States in conflict, not with peasant communist revolutionaries like in Vietnam or Nicaragua, but uh, but with the kinds of death squad reactionaries like Slobodan Milosevic or Saddam Hussein, that um, the United States was actually propping up in many places during the Cold War. In fact, literally, in some cases, like Saddam or the Taliban. The exact forces that the United States had propped up during the Cold War, seeing that, not having much hope, right, for for international socialism, and thinking this was the way forward for at least, you know, the spread of some kind of liberal democratic values. I think it's horrifically misguided. But I think it comes from good intentions. Similarly, I think, you know, progressive Ukraine hawks, I think, have good intentions. I think that um, they're correctly horrified by seeing Putin's imperialist war in in Ukraine, uh, by seeing some of the war crimes and carnage, you know, that have happened. Um, you know, they think it is pretty bad that you, know, you can get away with doing something like that, although not to put too fine a point on it, not unprecedented, see Iraq. Um, but I think it's horrifically misguided. And, and this kind of gets into what I was writing about for Jacobin a little while ago, uh, that article I wrote about... Um, internationalism, right? No left-wing opponents of war aren't isolation. Uh, uh, 
aren't isolationists. I think that was the title they put on it, but basically it was about what internationalism has always meant to the left and why it's so important to socialist politics. Um, and I guess this is the point. Hold on. Uh, yeah, I see Strom will take him in just a second. Uh, but I guess this is the point I'll wrap up on before I take Strom's call. Why internationalism is so important to socialist politics? Like, what's the connection between these things? Like, you know, last November, I was at this kind of conference that was co-sponsored by Mercatus, which is a libertarian think tank, and the Hannah Arendt Center, where they had a couple of, like, libertarians, and then me and um, Hadass Tier from Jacobin come to do a weekend of, like, argument about politics, basically, at different panels, and there were students who attended. And one of the students at one point, you know, asked me this question about socialist foreign policy, and I started saying a lot of the things you might expect me to say. And then they were like, no, 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 but what's the connection in the first place, right? Why is like being a socialist being automatically being anti-war? And I actually don't think I responded as well as I should have at the time, which is part of what I've tried to do a better job and stuff like this article for Sublation and that article for Jacobin about internationalism. You know, to my mind, I mean, there's more and less complicated or sophisticated versions of this that you can give, but I mean, I'll just give a very simple one here. Like socialism at its core is about empowering the working class. Um, that giving working class people more control over their lives and over the institutions that affect their lives. Um, there is no more extreme form of disempowerment of the working class than war. Right? And I'm not, you know, saying absolute pacifism. I mean, I think if you, you know, try to do a peaceful revolution <laughs> and there's violent ruling class resistance, overcoming that violently is fine. I think that, you know, I, I, I think that people were immediately invaded, you know, I mean, have the right, you know, to uh, to defend themselves. Although, again, um, wars, regional wars involving a great power, you know, invading a minor power tend to become world wars when a second great power becomes involved, as, you know, with see Serbia 1914 or uh, Poland 1939. Uh, but, um, you know, but as a general default, right, like, this is why it's so important to oppose, right? I mean, there is no more extreme form of, of, of disempowerment of ordinary working class people than war, where, you know, Putin and his oligarch buddies aren't in the slightest physical danger, uh, you know, any more than Dick Cheney and his Halliburton buddies were in, uh, in 2003, right? It's, um, you know, this, in 2003, it was, you know, American, you know, like ordinary working class Americans in uniform and, uh, and Iraqi soldiers and civilians uh, who are dying. And, uh, and now it's, you know, Russian and Ukrainian soldiers and Ukrainian civilians uh, who, uh, who are dying, you know, while the rich are just fine. Um, and, you know, in world, in an actual world war three, you know, an actual global thermonuclear exchange, you know, look, if there are any ways out right into, you know, mine shafts like Dr. Strangelove or, outer space, like, don't look up, uh, they're certainly not going to be for ordinary working class people. They're going to be for the ultra rich. So um, I guess last thought before I go take Strom's call and then, and then call it a night, um, I, I quote at the end of the article, uh, one of my all time favorite Christopher Hitchens lines uh, from not late Hitchens, uh, but from early good Hitchens uh, from the early 1980s, where he's talking about the Cuban missile crisis. And he says, uh, like nearly everyone of my generation, I can remember exactly where I was and what I was doing on the day that President John F. Kennedy nearly killed me. So uh, with, uh, with that said, let's, uh, let's take Strom's call.
All right, are you with us? I am indeed. Um, my question was, uh, I was wondering if you knew of any coffee shops, uh, bookstores in Brooklyn that a leftist might enjoy. I'll be there for like three days and I've never been, so I'm kind of clueless as to where to begin. So, Okay, all right. Uh, that's good. So let's see about this. What, what are you going to be there? Uh, the 25th through the 27th. I'm going to the uh, event at the, uh, yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. Well, yeah, I'll see you at that. But um, yeah, let me think about this, you know, because to be honest, even though I lived in New Jersey for years and during the tail end of that, when I was starting to do stuff like this, I would occasionally take the train into Brooklyn. Um, You know, it was mostly for stuff like, you know, I would go to like a Jacobin event at the, you know, Verso Loft, or I would like meet up with Michael. And like, usually that would mean just like going to a restaurant right by where I lived, you know? So uh, I don't have, uh, I don't have a ton of, uh, of good, um, of good recommendations off of the, uh, the top of my head, but um, let's see how, how can we do this? We can, uh, probably um yeah we can probably invite people uh, to uh to who would know better than i would uh to uh to make um you know to make uh to make recommendations in the um in the comments on this uh but uh but yeah that's exciting uh so yeah um look uh you know looking forward to seeing you and um yeah it should be should be a really good event oh yeah all right. All right. Thanks, Drum. Uh, I am actually going to uh, hold fast what I said earlier about time, and I'm going to leave it there for today. But I uh, might be doing another one of these as soon as tomorrow. I'm going to uh, do one with uh, Stefan uh, Bertrand Lee. So uh, I, will, I will see people then. Left is best. <laughs>